The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, says Proverbs 16.9. This has been one of my life verses. It seems like God always has a surprise in the path of our lives. In this episode of Humble Perspectives, I plan to read chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7, An Unexpected Path. The late Reverend Joe Johnson, whom we usually call Brother Joe, was a man several years older than my dad and one whom I deeply respected. Brother Joe's wife had deserted the Lord and her husband many years before this phone call, and he had remained single. He had been an effective pastor, loved deeply not only by his own church but also by many in Madison County, Ohio, where he had driven a school bus and served many of the poor in his community for years. He had given freely of himself and of his time to lead youth camps in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. He had worked tirelessly at any kind of manual job or administrative job necessary to make the youth camps possible and also the camp meetings that were sponsored by that denomination. More than all this, Brother Joe's spirit and demeanor communicated love and acceptance, especially to young people. He loved to talk like he was gruff and grouchy, but it was clearly a front. After retiring, he started an inner city mission in Columbus, Ohio. Even until his death in 2013 at age 96, he was still deeply involved in the ministry of that mission. If the Churches of Christ and Christian Union canonized saints, Brother Joe should be one of the very first to be recognized. He was serving as a district superintendent in Christian Union, and I was working in a Wesleyan church. Therefore, I could not imagine why he was calling me in Minneapolis, or what could be so urgent that he would call at 12.30 in the morning. But I soon found out. The promised call came, and we greeted one another. Brother Joe, as usual, got right down to business. There was a group of people in Richland Center, Wisconsin, who wanted to start a church that would be part of Churches of Christ and Christian Union. The nearest CCCU churches were in Indiana, and no pastor was readily available. He requested that Patricia and I meet him in Richland Center the second weekend of January. He wanted me to preach there, and he wanted to discuss our moving there to pastor the church. I had no desire at all to leave Wake Park. Patricia and I had found a home among the people of our church and were ready to put our roots down deep. But out of respect for Brother Joe, I said that I would consider coming and would let him know within a few days. After the holiday, I met with Pastor Hauser and told him about the call and the request. I was stunned when he encouraged me to meet with Brother Joe and to be open to the Lord what the Lord might be directing for us. I felt no rejection or anything of the sort. It was only that I had come to think the Lord had brought together a team that would be working together over the long haul right there in northeast Minneapolis. I was not looking for openings. Back in the spring of 1973, Wake Park had purchased a van for us in the youth work. We were also told that we could use the van for personal use. One morning in May 1973, I had dropped in unannounced on the Hickmans at their apartment. I discovered them and the Schreiders sitting in a circle on the floor of the apartment, their pooled finances, less than $100, on the floor, 
between them. They were praying for money for their move back to Ohio. One of their cars was not powerful enough to pull a trailer and the other had a rusted out place in the frame so that it was unsafe to use it. As I joined them in prayer, I began to think, what should I do? I had no extra money. But Patricia and I did have access to the van and our old 63 Ford was not being used. I said, I'm not sure my car will make the trip, but you're welcome to have it if you want to try. They jumped at the offer. On the day the Hickmans and Schreiders were to leave for Ohio, pulling the trailer with our Ford, I received a call saying that they'd made it only to the east side of St. Paul. There the transmission light had come on. They had stopped at a service station where they discovered that the transmission fluid was two quarts low. They asked me to have people pray. We did. Later, after they arrived safely in Lancaster, Ohio, they reported that the transmission had lost a quart of fluid every 15 mile, 50 miles until they reached Eau Claire, Wisconsin. After that, it went down a quart every 100 miles until they reached Chicago. Then they had no more problems. Several years later, when Patricia and I were visiting the meadows in Lancaster, the Shriders came to visit us driving that same Ford. Because we'd given the car away, we didn't own a car, and it didn't seem right to use the church van to look into another job. Therefore, on the 2nd of February, Patricia and I, with our toddler Elijah, boarded a Greyhound bus for the ride to Richland Center, Wisconsin. In January, darkness falls in Minneapolis by 4.30 p.m. We boarded the bus in mid-afternoon, so we didn't see much on the ride to Richland Center. I know we drove down alongside the Mississippi River and crossed over into La Crosse, Wisconsin on U.S. Highway 14. About 75 miles later, we came into Richland Center, and the bus stopped to drop us off at the hotel near downtown. We called a cab and rode in it to the Lamplighter Motel on US 14 east of town where Brother Joe was waiting for us. Once we had taken our luggage into our room, we went to Brother Joe's room to talk with him. After catching up a bit, we began to discuss the situation there in Richland Center. I blurted out, Brother Joe, you don't want me to pastor there. I speak in tongues. I had thought that this declaration would be the end of his request, but not so. In response to his questions, I told some of my story. I also told him that while I clearly believed in the continuing validity of the gifts of the Spirit, and the gift of tongues in particular, I did not hold any one gift to be the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I told him that, as I understood it, the gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit according to his will, and that one gift is not universal to all men. I took this understanding for 1 Corinthians 12:11 without fully considering other relevant passages that may point to a different conclusion. Brother Joe reached into his briefcase and pulled out a small booklet titled What We Teach, which Christian Union churches had pre published previously. I did not remember having seen the booklet before. To my surprise, it included a statement about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There were two parts to the statement. The first essentially said, We believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
but we do not believe that any one gift is the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The second part stated, Christian Union's strong belief in divine healing. The position I had shared with Brother Joe was essentially the same, if one took the words in the booklet literally. He said he knew people whom he respected as brothers and sisters in Christ who spoke in tongues. He went on to say that he saw no reason that my experience and belief should keep me from coming to pastor this new church as long as I did not try to promote speaking in tongues. My response was that this should be no problem as long as I was free to share my experience if anyone asked me since it was the Holy Spirit's business to give the gifts. I must say, however, that I knew Brother Joe's position on this matter was not typical of Christian Union leaders, including the view of my dad, a former general superintendent. I have no way of knowing what was in Brother Joe's thinking at that point. I have wondered if he questioned the viability of this church plant anyway, since it was a few hundred miles to the nearest Church of Christ and Christian Union. I also have thought that maybe he did not believe my experience could have much impact in the wider denomination anyway. As I understood it, however, I had done my part. I had been honest and open with the one who represented the authority of God and of the Christian Union churches in that situation. Therefore, instead of being released from making a decision, Patricia and I had to seriously begin to seek God to learn whether or not he was calling us to Richland Center. The more I learned about the situation in Richland Center, the less appealing it was to think about helping to start a church in that town. The people wanting a new church had split from the local church of the Nazarene in support of the former Nazarene pastor who had been removed from his position for disciplinary reasons by the denomination. The local church had begun a building addition and the pastor without authorization from the church board had authorized the contractors to spend about $30,000 more than the original contract. Apparently, this was the third time he had done something like this in a Nazarene church. Therefore, the denominational leaders had stripped him of his ordination credentials. This pastor had then approached a leader in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union asking to become a Christian Union pastor. I don't know whether that leader failed to check out his background or not, but he had been received into Churches of Christ and Christian Union and was looking for an opportunity to pastor a church. Several families who had retained their loyalty to him left the Nazarene church to begin a new church and the former pastor had encouraged them to contact Churches of Christ and Christian Union. Since Wisconsin was closest to the churches over which Brother Joe had oversight, he had become responsible for this proposed church plant. As far as cities go, Minneapolis is about as good as they get, or was in those days. There are seven lakes around the west and south sides, all joined by parks with walking tracks and bike paths, plus numerous other parks in the city. The next morning, as we left the motel and were able to see our surroundings in the daylight, we found ourselves in a rural wonderland. From the motel door, we looked out over snow-covered farmland to the southwest. A few miles further away, tree-covered hills rose up sharply like many mountains with huge rock bluffs standing out like sentinels among the leafless trees on the points of the hills. 
As we drove toward town on US-14, we could see that a similar hill rose steeply a few hundred feet high on the edge of town. Starting on the southeast edge of town, the hill wrapped around the east side and curved back in on the northeast. As we came into town, we could see that several of the side streets to the east ended at the base of that big hill. We discovered more hills northwest of town and directly west of town. The Pine River flowing in from the north split the hills and then flowed on south just to the west of town. We discovered that Richland Center lay in the Valley of the Pine, nestled between the hills on three sides. Most of the hills we would discover had ridges on top that extended into miles of rolling land. Whole farms sat atop the hills up on the ridges. Other farms lay in the creek valleys between these ridges. In a word, it was a beautiful place, even in midwinter. We met the people who wanted to start a church that weekend, and I preached at a Sunday morning gathering of about 35 people. They seemed to be nice enough people, but I was not very impressed with the situation. I had no desire at all to get involved with a splinter group from another church. On Sunday afternoon, we returned to Minneapolis. Although I was not inclined to move to Ritson Center, I did go back home prayerfully, seeking to know God's will. To my surprise, I gradually began to become convinced that it might be right to move to Wisconsin. As I continued to talk about it with Pastor Hauser and the brothers in the Bible study group, everyone seemed to confirm that I should go. Brother Joe had asked me to return to Richland Center two weeks after the first visit in order to conduct services for the new church. Thus, Patricia and I went again. This time we stayed with one of the families in the church. That weekend, we agreed that it was right for us to move to Richland Center to try to start this church in spite of the fact that in principle I was against the division that had resulted in the formation of the church. We returned to Minneapolis where I announced that I would be resigning as youth pastor in order to pastor in Richland Center. I was so convinced that this was God's will that I simply made the commitment without even considering the fact that in the churches of Christ. Christ and Christian Union, the local church had to elect a pastor. Brother Joe could strongly recommend us, but according to Christian Union polity, the people of the church had to call a pastor. The following weekend, I flew to Madison, Wisconsin, where Brother Joe met me, and we drove on to Richland Center together. He had scheduled the church vote that Sunday. We arrived on Sunday, and to our surprise, discovered that the former Nazarene pastor had also shown up. He was planning on the church having a choice as to whether to call him or me. And most of these people had already demonstrated their loyalty to him by leaving the Nazarene church. It was, to be certain, an uncomfortable situation. However, Brother Joe made it absolutely clear to the church board and to this former pastor that while the church did not have to choose me, under no circumstances would this pastor be allowed to start a church in Richland Center under the auspices of Churches of Christ and Christian Union. Brother Joe preached that Sunday morning. At the end of the service, the church voted to call me as pastor. Following the service, we had a meal together with the church and then returned to our motel. In mid-afternoon, the former pastor showed up at the motel wanting to talk with us. The man had an aggressive personality. 
He came in with a notebook and began to lay out all sorts of ideas and programs that he believed were necessary to build a church. One of his principles has remained in my memory all these years because I believed it wrong and also because it seemed to shed light on his failings. He said, what you need to do is get the church into debt by starting a building project. That way they will have a common project to work on and a commitment with that will keep them together. Later, the man did pastor two different Christian Union churches, neither under Brother Joe's oversight. Predictably, he caused serious problems in each church. After what seemed a long and insufferable time, the man left the room and apparently left town. No sooner had he gone than Brother Joe sighed and said, I couldn't ask you and Patricia to come here. Immediately I responded, that's good because I don't want to come here anyway. These statements, obviously emotionally based responses, completely ignored the fact that I had come to the conviction that God had called me to Richland Center. That evening, I announced that I was not going to accept the call after all. I went on to preach on unity. In that sermon, I exhorted the people to humble themselves, to repent of their divisive actions, and return to the Nazarene Church. I returned to Minneapolis with, as Chuck Berry sang, no particular place to go. I had resigned from Wake Park. My resignation had been accepted. Although there was no dissatisfaction with Patricia's and my service, it had been confirmed that our time there was complete. Now I had refused to take the church in Richland Center. Needless, needless to say, I was in a predicament. Less than a month before, I had not had the slightest inclination to leave Waite Park or Minneapolis. Now I had committed to leave both. Over the course of the next couple weeks, not one, but 11 different opportunities and possibilities came up for consideration, none of them of my own initiative. These range from taking a Wesleyan church in Iowa to beginning training with Wycliffe Bible translators. I was terribly confused. How was I to decide? In desperation, I started a fast on Monday morning determined not to eat again until I knew what God wanted of me. Early Wednesday morning, I rose from bed and left our second floor apartment in the Wake Park building and went down to the fireside room where I often read and prayed. I laid my Bible on the counter and, as was my custom in the winter, knelt to start a fire in the fireplace. As the wood began to burn, I cried aloud, Oh God, what do you want me to do? Although I didn't expect an immediate answer, words came to my mind, an answer from God that could not have been clearer if he had spoken aloud. I already told you, and you said you would not do it. I began to weep and repent. I decided to call Brother Joe as soon as appropriate that morning so that I could apologize and see if the opportunity in Richland Center was still available. Arising from my knees, I walked over to my Bible, which I had unwittingly left open on the counter. Following my Bible reading pattern, I had come to the book of Jeremiah early in January, about the same time that I had first visited Richland Center. However, all month I kept bogging down after a few chapters, thus I had started over at the beginning of the book several times. 
It may have been because I had been to those pages so often recently, but the Bible had fallen open to Jeremiah that morning. As I reached out to pick up the book, my eyes went immediately to a specific place on the page, Jeremiah 3:18 and 19. The words I saw immediately confirmed, in an indisputable way to my mind at that time, the encounter that I just had with the Lord. It read, They will come together from the land of the north to the land which I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Then I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nation. And I said, You shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. As the passage reads in the New American Standard Bible. Looking at that passage now, the memory of how powerfully God spoke to me through these words at that time remains clear in my mind. Over the years, I've looked at the passage a number of times and I'm always surprised to see that the passage itself does not mention rich land. Somehow the mention of a pleasant land and a beautiful inheritance translated into my mind as rich land. The passage did refer to coming from the north, which would be true of our move from Minneapolis to Richland Center. Geographically speaking, Richland County and Richland Center was as beautiful a place as I'd ever seen, and these words, and not turn away from following me, seem to speak directly to my refusal to accept the call, the act of which I just repented. I had no way of knowing then that the words you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me were soon to take on new and profound personal significance. I never questioned from that time forward that God had called me to this new work. The land was a blessing. After we once again had a car to drive, Patricia and I often went for long rides through the hills. We were never tired of the scenery in Richland County in southwestern Wisconsin. The people of the church rented a little house for us right on US 14, the next to the last house on the south end of town. Often I crossed the highway, walked a few yards to the south, climbed a fence, crossed a small pasture, and climbed up to a rock bluff on the point of the hill. From that rock, I could see most of Richland Center and a vast area of the river valley. It became a favorite place to pray. Before long, we found that we needed the promise of Jeremiah 3 and the gift of this natural beauty. While we have a number of good memories of the time in Richland Center, it also proved to be a spiritual wilderness, a place of testing. It became a time in which we had to keep making the choice not to turn back from following our Father. Chapter 8, A Painful Breach. We moved to Richland Center in mid-February 1974. One of the young men of the church brought his pickup and trailer up to the Twin Cities. With help from Wake Park friends, we loaded up our belongings and moved out. I had preached a farewell sermon on our last Sunday night there. Actually, for the first time in my life, I read my sermon. As I began to prepare, I was moved by the Lord, I believe, to write out in essay form a sermon on unity and diversity in the church. I was so convinced that the Lord had given me the message that I did not feel free to add to it. So I read it to the people. I do not know what the impact it had with the people, 
I also had no idea that this message would become the first piece of writing to be published. I had no idea that I would be developing this theme for years to come, this concept of unity and diversity. But later I would come to understand it's one of the building blocks of a biblical worldview. After arriving in town, we located the house at 1330 Sextonville Road, which is also, as I said, US 14. Several of the church people were waiting to greet us, excited to show us the house and to help us unload our belongings. The house was small, white with red trim, badly in need of fresh paint, sitting about 12 feet off the highway. An enclosed porch with several windows sagged off the front of the house. Once we opened the front door and stepped into the kitchen, we could see and smell why they were so excited. They had obviously worked hard to clean the house as well as possible and put fresh paint on the, all the inner walls. The house itself had four small rooms, a kitchen, a living room, and two bedrooms separated by doorways, but no doors. There was also a tiny bathroom and a rickety set of stairs going down into the cellar, which was dry but had an unpleasant odor that we discovered came from a small leak in the waistline from the toilet. To be honest, after living in the apartments in Circleville and Marion and in Minneapolis, it was a bit exciting to have our own home. So what if the basement was fragrant and the port porch looked like it might fall off? So what if you could stand in the doorway between the kitchen and living room on a winter morning and feel cold air coming through leaky windows from all directions? So what? It was our home. As I had done in moving to Wake Park, I was so intent on finding and doing God's will that I had not even asked about wages. Once we moved to Richmond Center, the members of the church board informed us that we, they were committed to pay us $50 each week for salary. Plus, they would rent the house and pay the utilities. Adding the rent and the house cost together, our income was $78.21 per week. We still had no car, and we couldn't afford one. So for the first two months, we walked, bum rides, or occasionally took a taxi. While this limited our mobility, it did save us money so that we actually set aside $100 in those two months. Then Brother Joe brought us a car that Christian Union had purchased for us to use, a 1968 two-tone brown Dodge Monaco station wagon, which they purchased for $800. We were thrilled. We also were glad that gas at the time was less than 50 cents a gallon since that car did drink up the gas. Once we had a car, we were able to get around. I could actually start calling on church members who lived beyond walking distance. However, we could no longer save money. Now we needed more. By late April, I was able to get a job driving a school bus for Earl Conley, a private contractor who owned four buses and had a contract to drive for the Richland County Schools. Earl paid me $11 per day to drive my scenic 45-mile route morning, route morning and evening. It would be difficult to find a more beautiful drive. I would discover the next winter that it had its challenges, however. The scenic gravel roads, roads up the hills were treacherous on snow. Twice I couldn't make it up a freshly snow-covered hill. With nowhere to turn around, I had to try to back up the bus a quarter mile or more using only my outside mirrors since the bus windows were too steamed up to see through. 
I made it back safely the first time on a straight road. The second time, I got stuck going up a wooded hill on a curvy tree-lined road. I was able to back up, negotiating the curves as long as the trees marked the sides of the road. At the bottom, I came to open fields where snow had drifted across the road and had filled in ditches along the sides. I got safely past an old barn and an empty house, but when I came to a straight section through a field, I steered a bit too far to the right, the right rear wheels dropped in the ditch, and I was stranded along with 30 or so students. One of the older high school boys walked to the nearest occupied house where he phoned for help. An hour or so later, Earl came backing up the road behind me with his bus. He hooked up a log chain to my bus and was able to pull it out. Then he, driving forward, pulled us safely back to the highway. Someone had contacted parents along the bad roads and they came out to me to set safe stops, usually in four-wheel drive vehicles. We all got home late, but safe. By February and March, the gravel roads narrow in the best times were barely the width of one lane because of the banks of plowed snow on the sides. The snow was piled so high that even in the high bus seat, I could not see over the banks. When I met a car, met a car on those roads, the car would back up to the nearest turnoff and let the bus pass. In addition to the daily route, occasionally I would be asked to drive students on a field trip or to take a team to an athletic event. On these trips, I could make $2.50 an hour and I would be paid for the whole time, not just the driving time. As a driver, I could usually get into the events free if I so chose. And if we stopped at McDonald's or a few other fast food places, as a driver, I could also receive a free meal. Usually, I didn't participate participate in the events, but rather I took books with me and used the non-driving time for study. On the whole, driving a school bus was a pleasant job. Though there were challenges as well as the occasional need to make the honoriness of a few to deal with the honoriness of a few older boys. I did not make much money, but it was enough. I drove only for the last month that first school year during that time of confusion after I had rejected the call to Richland Center, Patricia and I had once again begun to consider our desire to be involved in foreign missions. Even after repenting and then moving, we continued to feel pulled to pursue that work. So in April 1974, we decided we would apply to attend Summer Institute of Linguistics, the scientific and training arm of Wycliffe Bible Translators, at the school they hold at the University of North Dakota. We sent in the application and were accepted on condition that we would immediately send in the $90 registration fee and that we commit to pay nearly $1,000 before the Summer Institute ended in mid-August. We took $90 from the $100 that we had saved when we had no car and sent it in. And we began to pray for financial aid. From previous contacts, we had learned that Wycliffe's policy for members was that they not solicit, solicit funds for their personal support. Members could and should talk freely about their work in Wycliffe, but should talk about their financial need only when specifically asked about it. It seemed to us that we should make this policy our own as well, 
trusting the Lord to supply our needs. A few days after we sent in the registration fee, we received $100 in the mail. From whom and for what reason, I don't remember now. I had been reading through Proverbs monthly for some time. When we received this money, about one-tenth of our projected summer expenses, the words of Proverbs 3, 9-10 came to mind, and I couldn't get rid of them. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. I began to feel that we ought to give this $100 away since it represented the first fruits of our prayers. Eventually, I tentatively shared the scripture with Patricia. She rose to the challenge, telling me to do what I believed was right with her full support. So it was that we sent $25 each to four different ministries. The day after we put this money in the mail, the mailman delivered to us a cashier's check for $200 drawn on the St. Anthony National Bank, a small bank near Wake Park Church. Although we have some suspicions, we never did find out which human actually sent that money. We had no doubt that ultimately the Lord had provided it at just the right time to confirm our decision to study with SIL. We had consulted with Brother Joe as we'd been making the decision to study at, in North Dakota. Once the decision was made, we talked with the church about it. Brother Joe found a young couple from Circleville Bible College who were willing to come to Richland Center to serve the church that summer during our absence. The couple was to be paid the salary that we had been receiving. We had no source of income for the time that we were in school. A few days into the month of June, we left Richland Center and drove to Circleville in order to attend Church of Christ and Christian Union's annual ministerial convention. We planned to stay with my parents in Waverly, Ohio during the convention on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then we planned to visit Patricia's parents in Portsmouth before we headed back north at the end of the week. At the convention on Tuesday, I had lunch with John Meadows, who was an assistant pastor at the Lancaster Church of Christ and Christian Union, where John Maxwell, now well known for his seminars and books on leadership, was the senior pastor. Throughout that meal, we talked about the events of the past month, as well as what we've been reading and hearing. As usual, we stimulated one another to keep pressing on to recognize the present day work of the Lord and to be in it. The following events are difficult to share because they have to do with Dad as well as with me. I do not want to write about them because I do not want to cast Dad in a bad light. Such is not the case. I was foolish and wrong in many ways in the troubles that follow. Whether Dad made mistakes or not is between the Lord and him. I know that he was doing the best he knew according to his deepest convictions. What Dad did, he did because he loved me and wanted the best for me. Ironically, I also loved him and desperately, too desperately, wanted his approval. I later came to see. We both were fully committed to serve the same Lord, but because of differing convictions and human weakness, we hurt each other badly in the process. Thankfully, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Toward the end of the meal, I had begun to share with John the ways in which my relationship with my dad had been continuing to improve. 
I was rejoicing in the positive growth in our relationship. I continued sharing on this subject as we walked out of the dining hall and headed back to the chapel for the afternoon sessions. Just as we reached the door to leave the dining hall, I was saying to John, there's only one thing I still can't talk with Dad about, referring to having received the gift of tongues. As these words left my mouth, I glanced to the left and saw Dad using the payphone in the corner. I knew immediately that he had heard those words. His face showed obvious grief and pain. Sorrow and fear gripped me in an instant. I sent John on while I waited for Dad to get off the phone. Dad and I went upstairs into one of the classrooms. I kept trying to explain the context of the statement while Dad was pressing me to tell him what I couldn't talk to him about. Desperately, I tried hard to explain myself without talking about tongues, but there was no way. Eventually, I said it. I pray in tongues. Dad responded immediately by praying fervently for me to be free of the spiritual deception, so fervently that I ended up on the floor with him standing over me, praying for demons to come out of me. I knew his response was genuine based on his convictions and on his love for his son. But it was painful. Part of the approval I sought was for Dad to understand me. Looking back from my present vantage point, I now am confident that he understood me far better than I could recognize at the time. By having violated trust and having been a rebellious son, I had not established a foundation for communication around the significant difference in our doctrinal understanding and our spiritual experience. I think it must have brought up in his mind incidents from my teen years when I had unwisely sought counsel from other adults about my relationship with my dad. My cry to them had been that dad did not understand me. Then these people had gone to dad, probably trying to help, but had come across to him as critical and condemning. He had felt betrayed by me then, not without reason, as I see it now. Given our past relationship, Dad understandably saw tongue-speaking as one more rebellion. No explanation I could give would change that perception. However, not only did I pray in tongues, but I also had a deep revelation of spiritual authority. Although as an adult I was not under my dad's direct authority in the same way I should have been as a child, I knew that I needed to be open to hearing the Lord through him as an adult. He was still my father, after all. After a long, painful effort to communicate, we made no progress. Then Dad asked, Does John Meadows also speak in tongues? I tried to avoid answering for John, but my inability to deny that John also prayed in tongues left the clear impression that he did. At last, we left the classroom in an impasse, an impasse that continued during the rest of our stay with Dad and Mom. As soon as I could get to John, I told him what had happened. As quickly as possible, he told John Maxwell about it. Incredibly, John Maxwell's response was, I do not speak in tongues and don't know why you think you need to do so. However, I know you and trust you and I will stand by you. Neither John Meadows nor I expected such a response from John Maxwell any more than I had expected Brother Joe's response a few months earlier. I came to understand that a similar response was not an option for Dad. In addition to the doctrinal issue, my past rebellion had undermined trust too far, 
and the repentance that I made was too recent, making it difficult to build a bridge of trust between us. The fact that we were geographically separated by hundreds of miles, making face-to-face -face communication infrequent, added to the difficulty in working out our relationship. Dad's convictions against the modern-day tongues movement were deep, and they were shared by most leaders in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. In fact, during the very time that I'd been in Richland Center, the Christian Union General Board, which included my dad, Brother Joe, and also John Meadows' mother, had been working on clarifying an official posi denominational position about tongues. The bottom line of their position was that the gift of tongues recorded in Scripture was the gift of speaking supernaturally in a known language for the purpose of evangelism. The tongues mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14, according to this position, were not the gift of tongues, but were natural languages. Paul, they believed, was addressing the problem of people in the same local church insisting on speaking in their own native languages even though others in the church could not understand them. According to this position, modern tongues, as used by Pentecostals and Charismatics, is either an expression of uncontrolled emotionalism or a sign of demonic activity. Although until this encounter, I did not know that this was the official position being taken by the Christian Union churches, it was no surprise to me since it was consistent with what I had heard preached as a child. Although it was deeply painful time, even then I could see that Dad had no option other than to stand against what he believed be false doctrine and heretical practice. Therefore, I had no resentment toward him because of it. I certainly did not understand then that God was going to use this broken relationship with my earthly father as a means to draw me into a far greater fellowship and with, with and dependence on my heavenly father. That realization came to me gradually over the next 15 years or more. However, it would be more than 40 years before I understood that God had spoken to me already about what he was going to accomplish. In that passage from Jeremiah 3.19, And I said, You shall call me my father, and not turn away from following me. This was the passage, of course, that God had used to confirm my call to Richland Center. When Patricia and I left my parents' home on Thursday morning, we were still at an impasse, except that out of concern to deal with the authority issue, I had promised Dad that I would refrain from praying in tongues while we tried to resolve the issue. I also knew that Dad had already brought the matter before the denomination's general board. It had not been a pleasant visit for any of us.